this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here today with Mel and Rose, two very special guests that I invited to the show on purpose because they came as an inquiry, as a guest, to attend the community regeneration conversations that the Restorative Community Coalition hosted a week or so ago, and they stayed the whole week. It was fascinating to welcome them to the call to listen to the diversity of their backgrounds and experiences, and I felt it was important for us as a community to be able to listen to people speak about what did they learn from the conversation to share a little bit about why I thought they were fascinating and brought such diverse ideas to the conversation and enriched the entire community. So welcome to the call, Mel and Rose. Could you please take a moment and introduce yourselves? Rose, do you want to start? Sure, I'm Rose Eddington, and I grew up in the state of West Virginia um, in a fairly small town. And my father was a house painter, so his work often was seasonal. Um, so we really learned how to stretch dollars when we were kids or pennies as far as that goes. And also spent a lot of time at my grandfather's place, which was a little small farm. So grew up doing, oh, you know, things for survival that you don't think about or survival when you're a kid, like picking fruit and vegetables and canning and all that kind of good stuff and really have a deep appreciation for the Appalachian culture where I was raised. I was fortunate enough to get full scholarships to be able to go to college. And at that point in my life, I was going to a small American Baptist related college. And I thought that I would um, stay in West Virginia and do um, work through community groups in coal mining communities because there was such a need um, there in the state for that. Well, I ended up going to Rochester, New York to work on a Master of Divinity degree with no intention at that point of becoming a minister because I didn't, I only knew one woman who was a minister and I thought she was really weird. And <laughs> there weren't very many women ministers then, but when I was there, that was in the fall of 69, and by the time I graduated in 73, the school went from being, there were five women in my entering class, so there were nine women in the school, to being 50-50, men and women, and even later, more women than men in the school. And also living in a city in Rochester, New York, it was my first time to live in a city. So there was all kinds of stuff going on for me in my life um, and broadening me. But I also had the advantage of, of my mother being from England. She was a war bride. My father was in the Navy in World War II, stationed in Plymouth, Plymouth, England. So a lot of my friends in the when I was growing up, it was like 
you graduate from high school one night and the next day you were married and you were settling into the small towns and having your families. And because my mom had come from somewhere else and because we kept in touch with her family, it's like I always knew that even though I liked the life I had, I needed more, that there was more life beyond the hills. And so that was something that kept kept me going forward to find out more about our wonderful world. And also your early years are so important. So I will say that that's where I fell in love with the earth too, at my grandfather's place. Um, I felt like his land is interesting to feel like the piece of land loves you and you love it. Yeah. As well as loving the people in your life. Um, in seminary in Rochester, New York, that is where I met Mel. And I am a white woman who grew up in small town Appalachia. Mel is, he was this urbane man from Columbus, Ohio, um, who is multicultural himself and identifies as African-American. So there were all kinds of interesting dynamics surrounding our relationship and working things out with our families. Um, my father was not really happy about this. My mother did come to our wedding. My father wasn't able to handle it at that point. Wow. We have, we had a biological daughter and then when she was three years old, we adopted two sons who were older, nine and 11, um, who needed homes. So we have that going on in our lives. And our daughter had married a young man who has Chinese background. So the, our granddaughter that we now have has almost, uh, She's probably the most multicultural person you could meet <laughs> for a little seven-year-old with, I think, the whole world, almost all the different kinds of peoples in her body because Mel also has Native American blood in him. I have primarily European, if that makes that much difference. <laughs> but we, I guess from my religious background, I really got the teaching that everyone is equal, that Whatever, people are people and people are equal and everyone deserves to be treated with respect. So that's been part of my life and probably the great contributor to running into and meeting Mel. You might want wow. to talk himself. So yeah, Mel, please do bring your bring your cover. I mean, you sound even more fascinating than I thought you were before I started this call. So <laughs> please share, please share your background. Well, what's always interesting, as I say, it's interesting in terms of birth. None of us choose the family we're born into. Uh, we inherit them. And I inherited an interesting mixture of folks in terms of uh, Cherokee, uh, Seminole, uh, Irish, uh, Scottish, African-American, uh, French, Jewish. Uh, if I go back several generations, all of those uh, entities and configurations of relationship and identities uh, came together when my mother from Georgia, uh, uh, out of the good time of her Republican uh, uh, Party uh, affiliation and time, because it was the party of Lincoln from the South, and my dad coming from and being his family at one time coming from the plantations of, of uh, North and uh, South uh, Carolina. Um, and lineage from some of the great slaveholders of the time, 
And having seen a number of those people run away or leave or break away, and some of them, quite honestly, having such colorism in the uh, the, the the slave culture, that some of them had the choice of moving into the white culture because they could pass, and others who intentionally decided they would be in black culture uh, because that's the identity they wanted to try and, and grow and, and come into. So I I didn't choose all that. I just kind of got it. <laughs> I was born into it, you know. Uh, but at the time, the other thing I didn't know, of course, is what kind of place I was going to be born into or what it was like. None of us do. None of us got to choose ourselves. None of us created ourselves. We were co-created by some folks who lived in a place and brought us into a place. And we began to be uh, inheriting the culture and the, the smells, the taste, the attitudes, the ideas that we got through them Uh in, in terms of wherever we came into the world. We didn't choose that. We had nothing no. to do with it, but we all were shaped by it. And so that's the thing. I start from that premise that all of us share that. It, it, whoever we are, whatever status we're born into, that's the operational reality. And so that's kind of shaped my life. And I got that in my family. When I came into my family, one of the things was they were family. In our family, there wasn't any issue around race, gender, other kinds of things. You were part of the O'Neill, I'll use clan um, in the sense of the family language. <laughs> and we were collectively part of the O'Neill clan. And the, the, the on my mom's side, the O'Neills had five siblings. And so their families became my cousins, but many of them ended up being in Columbus, Ohio in my years, over, over my growing up years. So a lot of us grew up together, more like brothers and sisters than even cousins. And the, and our parents were very close and stayed close. And so they treated us collectively as part being part of the family. And then one of the things I'll always remember in growing up is that our birthdays, each one of us was, it was treated like it was Christmas. Wow. And that everybody made you feel like you were the most important person in the world and everybody celebrated your life and was part of you being who you were. And so that's kind of the attitude that permeated through through my family. So the diversity was an asset and it was highly colorful as well as very diverse. And that was a welcome thing and you and you enjoyed it as opposed to many of us of different heritages growing up where we're polarized, we're, uh, we are obscured, we're shunned, we're fought over, we have all this conflict, which is a lot of what we're dealing with today in America. So well, it was my normal. The issue, yeah. was, but for me, that's the way I thought the world was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of my growing up, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, as Rose said, but at that time, Columbus was an interesting place because it was kind of considered the mixing spot of America in terms of advertising and testing products. Columbus was kind of, folks came from East, West, North and South. Uh, they had racial groups of all kinds and it was actually the market testing place of the nation when new products would come out and stuff. They would always come to Columbus first. So we got among the first people to try new stuff to see if it worked in Columbus, that people would think it would be universal, that it would be marketable in terms of the business world, as did some ideas because we were a state capital. 
And it was also kind of this middle ground. Ohio is an interesting place in our country's culture because it was a place in which a lot of the things of creating the country centered around Ohio when they were the West, so to speak, in the early years of the colonies and then became the jumping off point to be able to create the westward movement from Ohio and being able to get supplies there and help other people live and go in. And, and believe it or not, I was taught that in my schools. I was taught that in my in my growing up to see that, quite honestly, um, I will tell you this. In Columbus, Ohio, on the big street of Broad Street that runs down, and then the, uh, there's this, it goes all the way across the town. And the city hall is prominent right on the corner of the of the Toyota River. And it's the place where East and West and North and South came together. And there is this huge statue of Christopher <laughs> Columbus. And so standing there. standing there, I mean, several stories high. At, at least it was in my growing up. So there's <laughs> no way to avoid this. And it was kind of like people took pride in this, even though the fact is he didn't discover America, he didn't know those things. But there was a sense that Columbus is special because yeah. it was Christopher Columbus. Well, and he also didn't discover necessarily that river either. So what was he doing there? That's an interesting <laughs> question. That's the, those are great questions. And, 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 but all I know is that in my younger years, before I got too much history, of course, I, like everyone else, took pride in that. As yeah. I some other history, I had some different perspectives to bring to that. But, then, yeah. but that's about seeking the truth. The point of what my life was about, we were committed. You don't lie. You seek the truth. You speak the truth. And you live from truth. Our ultimate sin was to, to lie. <laughs> Seriously. And mm -hmm. if you the lies, you were corrected, you were told differently, and, and you were expected to be accountable to truth. I came out of a strong religious uh, background, uh, but mine was interesting because my family was Episcopal, um, but we, my friends and networks, my mom also created the Boy Scouts group with the AME Church. We had Bible schools with the, whole, you know, uh, the Holiness Church in the summer. So my exposure was always to people and the variety of ways people expressed how they survived in the world. And they were different, but the real issue was the same. They're trying to figure out how to live and have good lives. So, so what's, what's really interesting about this, if I could add another layer of complexity to our conversation today, because I want to go back to why we did these, regener these regeneration conversations in the first place. It's because everybody approaches these subjects that politics often tries to pretend are very black and white. You're either for it or against it. You're either Democrat, Republican. You're either pro-capitalist or you're socialist or you're all this complexity. And it makes managing the world that we're living in today, which is highly complex because it's the 21st century, it makes our conversations very difficult to have sometimes. And yes, it is. And my background is I'm a farm kid from Eastern Washington, grew up as, you know, born in a city. But after age five, I grew up on a farm living with nature my whole time. So I'm like this very odd Western United States right. person who was born to a father who was Mennonite, born in, a, in Oklahoma before it became a state. My mother was born in a Catholic 
um, community in New Jersey migrated and both of them came together and migrated here. But my mother's background was working in as a farm worker uh-huh. and and working as a mother of six, seven kids as she was getting older. And she also worked in Holy Names Academy as a cook and as a house cleaner and then ended up working in a hospital. So my my background is very um, linear. It's German and Polish, 50-50. But my cultural background, my folks came from Europe and they, or my grandparents came from Europe. So I'm actually just second generation United States person. But my folks didn't talk about Europe. And I wasn't really familiar because they weren't born there. They were born here. And when they came here, they were prejudiced against. So we had no conversation. But uh, many of my first brothers and sisters were born in the 1940s, as I think you guys are, somewhere in the 40s. Yeah, 47. 47, 44. Yeah. Yeah. So my older brothers and sisters were born in the 40s in the aftermath of a world war, right? As all this stuff is going on. So there's a lot of cultural difference, but I was with a lot of white culture and the Native American people were living on the Colville Reservation or the Spokane Reservation or the, you know, in one of the reservations. And so my entire reality of understanding politics in the East Coast is very different from yours. And that was fascinating. And it became very obvious when we started talking about the regeneration conversations because we're trying to solve problems in the 21st century where diversity is all over the place. Social media has changed everything. So you guys came to this conversation and I was fascinated because you have a different way of seeing things. What, why did you, why did you come here and why did you stay on the call so long? Why did we come to Washington? You mean? No. Well, you can go either that. Why did you come to the conversation? Ah. And and why were you willing to stay with us when the subject is was not an easy subject? We're talking about criminal criminal situations. We're talking about bullying, and we're talking about homelessness, and we're talking about the most difficult period in history on one standpoint because we just came out of two years of COVID crisis and lockdowns, which is like imprisoning our entire culture. And you guys moved to Whatcom County, and you joined us. What was that? What's up with that? Felt right at home. My life has always been dealing with imprisonment and the effect and the issues of people trying to oppress and suppress and therefore low and knowing how to still maintain humanity mm. and, and to not give in to taking away or distorting somebody else's humanity. And I think that part of the gift of that is that Rose and I together help each other be accountable beyond the kind of inherited racial and class kinds of, of, of perspectives that operate and that we have some control within our family to be able to operate differently. And we, one of the things about the conference is that all of our married life, right. <laughs> we have had really interesting conversations around our dinner table. Right. And it felt like, oh, Look at these people here. They don't think like everybody else. Um, but they're very approachable. And I, I'll, I'll confess, I was like, 
you know, I really don't think I want to do this. The first day I was sort of on the edges and I would pop in and listen sometimes. And then I kept getting more drawn in. And the way that you, Joy, have of, of making your charts, of analyzing what's going on, made so much sense. And I think there's also this feeling that I have, like, I've really been enjoying retirement in a way, but I've also felt like part of me has been on vacation. And part of it has been also with COVID. It was kind of like, how do I really get to understand this community? And it felt like I was really getting to understand what what's going on in Whatcom County, what's going on in Bellingham. Um, and there was something almost like a feeling of coming home throughout that conference. And I think initially Beth Brownfield, we knew someone yeah, who, who was kind and welcoming us and helping us Inter try and introduce us to the community. We her, knew if she recommended it, it would be we have, Yeah, we have such respect for her, and, and she is a bridge builder, connector, as we are. And I think that when she said these are important people who are understanding and, and dealing with real things in real ways, uh, you all need to meet and get together. And when I then saw the flyer, when I saw the actual, went online and saw the conference and said, I mean, to be honest, this is been part of my life work, creating healthy, sane uh, organizations and systems. Um, I've been blessed to have an opportunity to do that uh, in, around the country and around the world in a variety of ways. So I'm always looking for people who are doing that in local places and spaces. And so it was a gift to us because we haven't been able to get out with COVID and get to meet all these people, go to all the events we would have done in an ordinary entry to this community. So, and the other reality is to be candid, um, you often find out how a community operates and what its real values are from the least of these. In terms say, that, of, say that again. You often find out what a community's real values are and what it truly values, not what it always says or promotes in the brochures, but from the lives of the, I'm using the biblical language of the least of these, that folks are sometimes are the homeless, the, the sheltered, the folks who are struggling, the poor, honest people that in communities of wealth and stuff, get, they're living a good life, but they're scrambling to try and survive. And, and all those things that we know that they can't avoid the truth and reality because they have to see the truth as it is to survive. And so we're gonna get an idea more honestly of what's going on in a community, quite honestly, uh, without that voice, you just don't get a real picture of what's going on in, 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 in our experience in a city. The other reality is this is the first community I've been in and lived in for a significant period of time with this number of people and it's, and it's such an influential point geographic center that doesn't have its own Real, I'm, I'm sorry if I insult some people, doesn't have a real newspaper that really has uh, daily input and understanding of what's happening in the neighborhoods and what's going on in people's lives. That doesn't have a TV station or a radio station that people, the voices from the people, get to express themselves and react to things that our government officials are doing and, and other forces and factors that are operating. And so I've been trying to figure out how do we get truth? How do we find out what people are really learning and experiencing 
And where's the common place to yeah, gather? It's hard to find a common thing. Um, that is one of the, we both have missed a sense of media here that we were used to in other places. And sure, we can turn on the TV and listen to Seattle news and what's going on there, but we aren't learning what's really going on in Whatcom County, in Bellingham itself, and what are the dynamics. It's just, it just feels like if we had better media, maybe there wouldn't be so much fragmentation. You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up in Colville, Washington, and I, at 15 years old, I was hired to sell advertising for a little panoramic advertiser. It was a weekly newspaper. And at the time when they came to town, they opened the newspaper as a little five and dime, like a little nickel one ads. It was a very commercial, citified model. And I, they hired me because they wanted somebody local. They thought that if they had somebody local, I knew everybody in town. I was in 4-H. I got all kinds of awards. Yep. I could walk around yep. town and sell ads. But it took me one time around the, the community and I said, hey, I'm, I just got this new job. I'm selling ads for the local newspaper. Would you like to buy some? And the, it was a pan no. It was like nobody was interested. Right. And and I went back to the to the boss and I said, you know, I'd love to sell ads for you guys, but man, nobody's interested. And they said, well, this thing works in every other city. And I said, well, it's not going to work in Colville. And the reason it's not going to work in Colville is because there is not a doggone thing in here that is about the people. And if you don't, just because you're putting in clip art and commercial statistics from the big city, these people don't care about all that. What they care about is each other. I need to write. We have to have some articles. And he says, well, I don't have the budget to write articles. And I made him a deal. I said, look, <laughs> if I write the articles, will you give me the byline and will you publish them? Because if you'll do that, I'll write them for free because I can't sell ads unless I have articles. You need articles in order for me to sell ads. So just give me credit. I'll write them. And then I can sell ads for him. He said, okay. <laughs> wow. So, so that newspaper, believe it or not, this is why it sort of matters. This is, you know, it took a little bit, but we went from a four page weekly to an eight page weekly to a 12 page weekly in a matter of a year, two years. Wow. And we became a 24 page special edition newspaper because that was our principle. And so when I was out selling ads and delivering newspapers, I had my little Polaroid camera and I would take pictures wherever I was. Right, you were your own staff. <laughs> you know? right. And I was my own newspaper writer and it grew like crazy. But that's what holds the glue of the community together. It really is news and people being able to talk. And what's interesting is when I moved to Bellingham in the 70s, I loved Whatcom County. We had a daily newspaper. We ah. had a television station. We had aggressive and active chambers and active wow. um, cross-pollination from all these different groups of people. We had a, a Northwest economic development type of group of people who were doing fourth corner exchange. I mean, we were a going concern promoting small business and bringing people together to build a local economy. And in the past 40 years, what is it, 74 to 2024? 20, that's not 60 years, 50 years, 50. <laughs> whatever it is. In 50 years since I've lived here, wow. all of that is gone, really. 
I mean, we have clubs and we have sororities and groups and rotaries and these things, but they're all fractured. They're all siloed into their little groups and the chamber of commerce is siloed and it's different from, and I ran the visitor and convention bureau. So I'm talking too much, but I wanted to oh, break really quick. Well, there's a reason though, like who benefits by us being this fragmented? That's my That's question. A good question. Let's, let's come back and talk to that in a minute. We need to take a quick break here. We're talking with Mel and Rose, new to Whatcom County, and we're talking about the Regeneration Conference that we held a couple of weeks ago, just to talk about community regeneration and what it's like to start building and rebuilding a new community in the aftermath of the COVID crisis. This is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice, and we will return after the break. If you are a business owner or professional who wishes to sponsor our Restorative Community Coalition, give a legacy gift to the Restore Life Center project, or support our fundraising events, feel free to contact us at sponsors at therestorativecommunity.org. Welcome back, Mel and Rose. We were talking earlier about the, the change in social structure and media and how we communed in the 70s. How, and we haven't had time and we won't have time today to move from the 70s to 2020. But since 2020, since that um, COVID crisis hit, since we've had constitutional crisis and political crisis all over the nation, we've also had it here with the event January 28th of 2021. We had a big uh, issue where the community ended up under a kind of attack, a political kind of attack that really changed the culture of our community. We've been standing up against the um, increase of the jail industry because what the public has wanted was um, social services because that's the other thing that changed 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. We had more social services. Today, a lot of that is gone and so we've had truly a structural change in social issues. Can you guys speak to that? Well, you asked earlier, why did we stay on? <laughs> January 28th, because as new to this community and just seeing what happened, I was shocked and I didn't know really what to make of it, what to do, what all the underlying dynamics were. I just knew that a lot of people were being traumatized and it was a cruel event. And one of the good things about your conference was just being able to learn about what really happened. Yeah, and I, I think the reality is that, uh, again, we don't have time to go into all our history, but you know, way back at my, out of seminary, one of my first assignments was the church I was assigned to is that one of the members of the community, we had an after-school program. And it was interesting because it worked the neighborhood kids. It wasn't for how to get families, families to come to the church, but how do we serve what's going on in our neighborhood and help the neighborhood be a stronger neighborhood? And but in that relation relationships develop between the kids and the parents and others. And so one of the mothers, quite honestly, in a domestic violence situation, had a turned out to have a very abusive husband. Um, and her life was threatened and she actually had to defend herself and she killed him. And oh, wow. uh, instead of everybody, but she was known as a person that was a good human being. So members of the community said, hey, we know this human being. We also know the circumstances. We need to support her. And so actually my assignment was to go in there to into the courts 
and as she was going through the processes to see what was going on and for her to know that people cared. Well, one of the ironies of that, when I sat there, uh, let me be honest about this. I stayed around, not just for her. I said, I want to see what's going on in this system here. And I began to know, notice patterns around similar kinds of offenses or charges. I began to notice that sometimes the sentencing was very different. And I began to ask myself why, when a lot of the things sounded very similar in terms of the behaviors and what was going on. And to be honest, over a period of days and doing that for weeks, I said, what's different is here that people who happen to not be white seem to be penalized more and pay a higher price for what's going on. But am I right? So when I went back to the, my church and talked to the people there and some of the mothers, of, I mean, people, the members, some of them were judges' wives and police officers' wives. And kind of some of them went, oh, well, I said, well, tell you what, would you be willing to go with me and to sit there for a couple of days and see what you see? And fortunately, some of them said yes. And so I went in and started to see. And guess what? They saw things they didn't see when they weren't able to think that it was someone else who had to face the system. That taught me a lot that yes. able to see things clearly and to be able to understand and expose people to new realities or realities, the angle of analysis, we called it, to give them a different. They became very powerful. They began to be the ones that say, this isn't the kind of judicial system we want. And their voices were heard in a different way when they went back to their judge husband and say, I was in the court. I want to tell you what I saw. And they began to say, well, let's talk to people anyway. But I say that because I've lived my life in other communities with that kind of analysis and that it has made a huge difference in terms of when you help people see what they can't see or help them know what they don't know. And then they get it. Then the opportunity for creating something new and different exists. So my question, and you asked me again, is why did I stay on that call? Why did I see this? Because I don't know Whatcom County. And I needed to be able to see through your eyes and other eyes who live here to help me understand what their reality is. And for me to be able to then figure out how I can help in that or help that be a healthier reality or what role I might or might not play. So the gift of that in this program and, the, and Rose and I could talk to each other and it was we couldn't stop. And we kept talking after the program was off. <laughs> That's we cool. Stopped. Yeah, we did. And so we had to come back. Well, I think now your example of watching the things in the courts and that led to the organization called Church Women United took it on as a project and had all kinds of women going in to see what was going on in the courts. And it's a really great example of people power that when you get exposed to something and you get people involved, you actually can make some structural change. And so, Joy, that's one of the things that you are really good at is bringing about letting people see the underlying structures. And if a structure has been created, there's also the possibility that if it doesn't need to last, it can be um, unstructured. There can be restructuring or as you, you regeneration. Um, that's right. So that's why I kept coming back. And 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 we can't go back to normal. You asked, you, you talked about COVID. The thing about it disrupted us to the point there was no way to go back into the water we'd already been in. Yep. There's no way to return to that, right? 
So we have to, so the issue is what are the new waters we're going to create to be in? And do we want poison in it? Or do we want it to be healthy, clean, nourishing waters in that sense uh, for our kids, our children, and for uh, the future of, of our humanity? Well, one of the reasons, thank you guys for bringing those things up, because one of the reasons it's it's so fascinating to look back on why did we do this conference? Part of the reason is because Irene Morgan, who's the founder of the Restorative Community Coalition, myself, I, um, Debbie David, multiple hundreds of volunteers that have worked with the Restorative Community Coalition, we've been going to court We've been doing interventions. We've been writing programs. We've been developing ways to be able to help people in a system that has historically rejected our desire to change it. Like no matter what we've done, the establishment is so, I'm going to say calcified or somewhat dogmatic. Mm. It's It's got a habit pattern. It's It runs on its own steam and it runs on the habit because the leaders for the last 30 to 50 years are of the same mindset. Right. The mindset. The same, many of them are the same family heritage and they're the same behavior system. So we're a small enough town. It's really interesting. Whatcom County is sitting on the border of the United States and we're bound on one side by the salt water. So there's okay. no ingress and egress there by a mountain range on the right. other side and by a right. U.S. border on the north. So it's like we're like this little cat, this little test tube, if you will, yeah. where we all know each other and we live and we have a lot of transport through to north and south, but it comes via the border. And when the border changed, a lot of the mixing and matching that should have happened in the last 20 and 30 years was right. shut down. Okay. So it's like we've almost got an arrested development here. <laughs> right, you know, right, even okay. though we're very we're very 21st century in many ways, culturally it got stymied and stuck. So one of the reasons mm -hmm. we had to host this conference, or I felt it was critical, and and the colleagues that we've met across the nation, we have people in the nation who are listening to what we have to say. Well, that was our part of our surprise. We hadn't expected that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, and because we were hosting it, I started calling people from outside to say, hey, would you come speak? You know, we need new thoughts. We need new thought thinking. We need people who have solutions from other stuff. And in doing it, I find found out that some of the people in Arizona are actually following Irene's models. Oh, really? And, yeah. And there's people in San Antonio, Texas, who are doing compassionate cities. And it's very similar to stuff we've tried to do. We've got people in other parts of the country that are doing restorative justice. We've been doing it for a long time. But it anyway, the whole point of that is that it allowed this whole new conversation to erupt. And you guys were key to that because you constantly could bring in, hey, we did it over here. We did it over there. We learned this over here. So your diversity was highly welcomed. Well, thanks. Well, and, and again, I think the part of what we were trying to do and share is to let people know is they're not alone. Uh, you were saying they're isolated, but in fact, the same kinds of issues and dynamics are happening in multitude of other places. And so there's actually a lot of similarity, but people don't know it. So part of the miscommunication is that the things, the good things that are happening, the kinds of changes that are bubbling up, again, 
aren't always shared and known. So people don't realize the real power and the real insight and possibilities that are happening because everybody kind of thinks in their geography or their group or whatever. And so they don't see the larger picture. And there's not a kind of a communication construct that helps people see the broader picture so that others can say, oh yeah, uh, I got this and I can share that and I can borrow this and wow, it's not so, it, it's a challenge, but it's not impossible. Look, it's, an, it's an opportunity right. to change. It's an opportunity to hear what other people have to say. We have so much opportunity in Washington state. We have so much opportunity in Whatcom County, but if we don't even know that we can talk about it and we don't have a way to have these conversations that are not within, it's like we've been sort of stuck within three minute sound bites at county council meetings, as if community development happens inside right. testimony, inside a legal system. It That's doesn't work not, that way. No, it doesn't. Well, is there any history of kind of uh, educate us? Because we're, we're used to civic conversations. In fact, we've helped catalyze civic conversations in terms of many of the communities we've lived in as a vehicle for bringing people together. Uh, and to like in Rochester, in Rochester, Rochester yeah, we, and, and, and what we know is sometimes we intentionally bring people that don't know each other together or we provide a way for them to come together so they can discover what makes sense for their mutual survival. But if you can't get people into the same place or space to talk about it, they don't discover that. And the opportunity for a transformative change that helps everyone gets lost. And so some communities have figured out ways to do that, and some haven't. So I guess our big question for Mark is, to be candid, is that something that Whatcom County has figured out? Is that or is willing to figure out? And I don't know if it's right or not, but, but I don't know what it means. But we came in when they're doing the uh, racial uh, equity committee and commission, which sounded like it was the kind of effort to bring constituents from all kinds of places and spaces together to say, how do we figure out what's going on for real and how can we work together to co-create something? Uh, and I felt that's what you were doing with this conference. You were inviting people in to do the same kind of thinking. Is is that, does that make any sense when I say something? It like makes, it makes so much sense. And it, but you've actually put your finger on probably one of the snarliest problems we have here. <laughs> so one okay. of the things, so maybe you guys can help me bring light to the subject because when you have, here's what I found. That's what I can say. Here's what I found after 13 years of studying on the snarly problem of why does our county establishment insist on building a prison that's the, that would be second largest in the, in the state, 2,450 beds, which is what the spec sheet said they wanted to build in 2010. When the largest prison in Washington state is only 2,556 beds. So these guys were spec sheeting on 20, 2,540 beds. And they wanted to put the sheriff's headquarters inside the compound. And they wanted to do mental health services inside the compound. And these are not the same things as other states. And it used to, it puzzled me for a long time. And I couldn't figure out what the problem was. And over the last few years, I've realized that we have structural habits in our political systems, uh -huh. which in fact 
divide people into it's the law or it's politics, it's business or it's, you know, capitalism or it's, you know, it's like we've been divided and conquered politically and structurally. And then culturally, it comes out in the last four or five years because the cultural divides in, came into the county almost from the national level because of the, you know, the George Floyd killing, a lot of the issues that showed up with the constitutional okay. conflict that came in and it bubbled up this, the racial issues and the cultural issues and the indigenous people issues that have been somewhat covered up for quite a few years. So the movement started to come in and there were a lot of unrest. And so it showed up. Right. But it didn't necessarily cross-pollinate to the structural layers that are different. Do you understand what I mean by that? Structural versus cultural versus community. It's like we're in this odd mixture of non-cross-pollination that still looks like it's cross-pollinated. Well, it's a false pollination. I'm part of it, again, what are the constructs, what are the, the, what I call the overlaps? You have to have in successful change processes, there has to be an arena of overlap when everybody sees their vested interests, their self-interest at least addressed or understood. And I'm not clear where that is in this community. That's what I'm saying is I've looked at, I know how to do it. I've lived it. I've helped create it in a number of places around the country. Uh, but so the issue is how do you do it in a community here Every community is, in one sense, every community is distinctive. But on the other hand, the dynamics of building a successful strategy have some similar kinds of patterns and understandings if people own them and buy into them. And so that's the issue I'm trying to figure out here. Do people want an integrated total? When I say integrated, I mean the sense of all of us trying to figure out how to be a human uh, community together, interconnected. Uh, interconnected at least at this point. I'm not saying everybody has to be everybody and like all that, but how do we create a safe place and a nourishing place uh, that all of us are not at risk, but all of us have the possibility of finding our humanity and finding and utilizing our best capacity? That's the question I'm asking about this community. So that's one of the reasons we hosted this conference, to be very honest. That's one of the reasons we hosted this conference. I want to take a quick break and come right back. Let's talk about that because I think that you hit the nail on the head again, which is one of the reasons I wanted you, Mel, and you, Rose, to join us on this call because you can help us find the language to talk about bridge building across our different cultural differences, which we try to pretend we don't have because we do have them. It's just that we don't know how to talk about them in a healthy way. So let's take a break and we'll be right back. At the Restorative Community Coalition, we are seeking donors and legacy contributions for our Restore Life Center. To learn more about the Restore Life Center project or donate directly, contact us at info at therestorativecommunity.org or visit our website at www.therestorativecommunity.org and click on the donate button. We're welcoming back Mel and Rose, and they posed a very provocative question. And that's one of the reasons why the Restorative Community Coalition hosted the conference, the uh, Regeneration Conference, Community Regeneration, because 
what we found as advocates for the people who are somewhat shunned or cast out of our community, the people who have been criminalized, the people who are coming back to the community from uh, being imprisoned or even coming back from you know, war, people who are having problems fitting into our culture, people who are dealing with homelessness, people who are dealing with mental illness. There's There's been a cultural divide between the way those people, quote unquote, those people were treated when I first moved here in the 70s and, and growing up and in business during the 80s, even the early 90s. We had challenges, but we don't have them the way we have them in 2022 and 2021. So what happened that that happened was a good question. And no matter where we went in our systems, like you said, we didn't have a strong cross-pollinating media. We had polarized media or we had no media. We had cross-pollination stories that we were talking about politics. But in fact, we had a very strong Republican versus Democrat. Mm -hmm. And I learned that when I ran for elected office and I was told over and over, you've only got to win the one or two percent in the middle because the Republican and Democratic Guard is still in charge no matter what. So all you have to fight for is that one or two percent that will take you over the line. And mm. that didn't make any sense to me because we're supposed to have real public debate. But right. what I found was that you don't have real de public debate because just like the media, it has gotten sort of cloistered in its style. So as we were walking towards saying, how do we have a real public conversation about social services? We found polarities. We found clusters of people who had positions, but they weren't intermingled. So that's why I was so excited to have you guys come on the call, because it sounds to me like you've worked in multiple different cities with multiple different kinds of people, and you've successfully helped people have conversations when like right now, we've got a highly polarized, highly inflamed community, people who are getting ready to go to the polls to elect people in yes. a few weeks. And yet we've got this massive divide caused, in my opinion, by this, um, by this polarity and the game we've been playing about where does crime come, come from, when in fact, it seems that it came heavily in in reaction to a socioeconomic divide and an attack on our entire society that's sort of blown us all out in poverty and in trauma. And now we've got a mess. So how could we possibly approach that and talk about it? I that's I open it up to you guys. And that reminds me of the Crossroads training in the first- Of, of what? Can you speak more clearly? Oh, one of the organizations we put together. One of the organizations we've worked with has been Crossroads, which does anti-racism, anti-oppression training. And the way that we started dealing with anti-racism was to ask the question is, why are people poor? Ah. Not race, not race, but why are people poor? That's a good question. And out of those trainings and talking about it and starting from that angle, it really led us into being able to look at how things are structured. Um, people from all kinds of different backgrounds have different ideas about why people are poor. So it's one way to really get a conversation going. I'm not sure where the, where the common neutral places are 
in this city or county to have general conversations like that. I think the other thing that's happening is that it's not just in Whatcom, but one of the ironies is that how do you measure wealth? And I say that because it's, it's not always been measured the same way in different times, in different places, or who has the right to have wealth. And isn't it crazy that if we go back, to, I'm going to go back to the 70s or 80s, the 60s and 70s, when we actually had a viable middle class in the 50s and 60s, that was a major force in keeping things honest in a way. We have not had in the United States of America a middle class for any significant length of time. We've had a stratified culture of very well-off folks and some other folks who have some benefits and a lot of other folks who have struggled and others who didn't even show up. They were enslaved or incarcerated or other things. And that's the reality. But we've kind of bought this system about anybody can be president and anybody can be a millionaire. That's not the way it's structured. That's not, it's, that's a lie. It's a cultural lie that a lot of people have been fed and have bought into. And one of the ironies is, as I look at culture right now, it's not just Blackcomb County, I mean, it's around the country, it's in other places as you look at other nations, similar patterns, is that as technology has increased, one of the things that's happened is that folks who used to be the, the heart and soul of our economy, they're not needed. And those people were predominantly in the United States, white persons who were able to live a good life, feed their families, get their kids to school and live the middle-class dream for a while that was put out there. But those jobs are not needed in the same way anymore. And they aren't accessible to people uh, in the same way that folks who used to be hardworking laborers uh, were, might, uh, who could work at a company or work at an industry may not have been paid a fortune because it wasn't a system structured to give them a fair wage. But they can, they had a skill that at least allowed them to get survivable wages and stuff. Well, guess what? Those jobs aren't there anymore. So people that used to be even workers and contributors in the economy are now folks who are, quote, unquote, the bottom layer. You know, they've become untouchables in some ways in our culture. I'm using that language. I hope people know aren't insulted by it. But it's in terms of talking about the economic reality. And folks who used to be good middle class folks, they can't make it and do the things that middle class folks could do because the wealth has been sucked up and it's going into a few hands. And the irony is most people are looking up instead of looking up, they're beating folks down below them and blaming them for their problems. When the resources are sitting on top of the mountain with folks sitting there laughing at everybody else, because we don't know that they've stolen the money and stolen the resources. Wow, you just put the entire pickle that we're in, and I mean a sour pickle. We're in a pickle. We're in multiple pickle barrels at our county right now. <laughs> and the challenge is how do we bring these pickles out in such a way that we can actually put them together, create a cornucopia of food so that we can actually solve the middle and lower class problems? And so that we can actually solve the mental health and physical human resource problems. And how do we rebuild our local community? You know, we're running out of time here, but I just really want to say that what you just said is a very appropriate way to look at the challenges that we have today 
and trying to do the same thing and build huge buildings to solve a mental health and social justice yeah. and economic and working class problem, it won't work that way because all the taxes are going up. All the increases in assessments are going up. The middle class is being chased out of Whatcom County because mm -hmm. we're focused on doing things the way we did it 30 and 40 years ago. It is not going to work in the 21st century in the same way at all which is why we hosted the conversation. I want to thank you both for coming on here. Do you have one last sentence or two you could add to the conversation before the show is over? I think just to mention briefly that we need to restructure because of all the things we've been talking about and also because of climate change. And we could go, we could have a solid middle class if we invested in things like alternative energy, solar panels, windmills, what have you, those would provide very good jobs. Um, yeah, we need to restructure the whole tax system and all that. So such things like that can happen. And good health care. Got to say, Definitely. we got different and alternative health and and mental health and emotional services. Go ahead, Mel. I, I intercepted. No, that's okay. I was thinking back to my early life. And one of the things I learned is that I we were in Rochester, New York, and that's where Kodak was. And during that area of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Kodak and General Motors were the sign of America, America's great wealth and health. And, I'm not, and some of us in the community of all races and classes got together and said that we're a corporate town. And if we're going to try and be able to have a future for everyone, we have to change how we're going to do. And to be honest, we joined forces with people power and we took on Kodak and we basically said, you can't keep doing what you've been doing and we won't cooperate or we won't let you. And it took a while because some people said, how can you take on Kodak? They're so powerful. Well, then ironically, some counter forces, Xerox came in, which was a different kind of wow. Company. Joe Wilson, who, who was a friend, founded Kodak, had a different, I mean, Xerox, had a vision of a more holistic world and place and had the power to begin to plant that, that other folks could gather around in the corporate world to say, no, the vision, vision for the future is around this and not that. And that gave strength and political strength as well for us on the street to organize in new ways to say we will stop cooperating with the old ways. We're going to start doing things in new ways. And we did. And we changed that community. We won that. And then we said, now we have to rebuild in new ways, not using the old tools, the old things that we're going to create new way. We have to retool ourselves so we could actually have an end product that truly is different and not just a modification of that which has kept us apart has not worked for us in the past. Can Whatcom County do that? That's the question that has to get answered here. And I don't know the answer. I know what I want to fight for. What I know is can happen if enough people buy into that, that will be the future that will happen. And I also say if people don't, then we may have to find another place to live because it's not the place we want our grandchildren to live in. Boy, that's you just nailed it to the to the uh, target again. That's what we're talking about. That's the challenge that we have, and that's the opportunity that we have. And it became very clear after we hosted that week long conference and had so many people from so many different groups 
walks of life and backgrounds show up, the resources are available. They're, the ideas are here. 21st century technology has given us so much opportunity to create change. And even without a commercialized media, we can use social media, we can use groups and pods of people to bring the best of our ideas together and we can bring change. So I would invite any of you on the, the show here to invite yourself, your friends, to go to the Restorative Community Coalition YouTube channel. We've posted at least 15 to 17 videos so far, more are coming, that were recordings from the conference that Mel and Rose and I have been talking about today. There's a lot of provocative stuff there. It's the initial findings coming out of the conference. This is not by any means yet the report that we promised that will be coming out later in October, November, that will help us create change in the future because we must have a different economic solution for our community that does not require massive amounts of taxes. The, the seniors and the young people and the people who are displaced and the economic condition that we're in as a county, our people, our working class cannot afford it. We that's simply right. can't afford it. We have to do something different. And that's why we're standing up saying, how can we do it different? So thank you, Mel. Thank you, Rose, for showing up, joining us in the conversation and making the conversation bigger. You were a real asset. Thank you so much. If you allow me, let us all say together, amen. <laughs> well, how can I stop you? You had the closing words. <laughs> thank you and have a great day. Thank you, audience, for checking us out. Go to the YouTube channel, The Restorative Community, or Restorative Community Coalition is actually the YouTube channel. We're also on iChange Justice. Thank you for joining us. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.